Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. This was the week that Jared Hutch was found not guilty of the murder of David Byrne, the Kinahan gang member who was shot dead at the Regency Hotel in 2016. Just after the verdict was announced, crime correspondent Paul Reynolds spoke to Drive Time. Well, Jared Hutch was a free man. Uh, once he was found not guilty, uh, he walked out of the special criminal court dock. Uh, his, his two co-accused were remanded in custody for sentencing later uh, in July. Um, he walked out. Uh, he, he came down a flight of stairs. Uh, there was a large media presence, including myself, following him. Uh, he went into, a, in, into the private uh, solicitors and barristers canteen and stayed there for a while. And then he walked out the front door of the CCJ. Uh, now, Jared Hutch, the traffic has been stopped uh, for every day that he has appeared in this court uh, by the Gardaí as he was escorted to and from the court while he was in custody. Once again, the traffic was stopped because Jared Hutch came out to find a taxi. Uh, there was some miscommunication between him and the taxi driver. The taxi driver apparently told him he was there, but he wasn't in the right place. Jared Hutch couldn't find the taxi. He was walking up and down Park 8th Street for some time, being pursued by the large crowd of media. There were also some well-wishers there wishing him the best uh, until he finally um, got into the taxi and drove away. A free man. And much of the state's case had been based on evidence given by former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdle. On Liveline, we heard an interview from March 2016 with Jonathan Dowdle. His house on the Navan Road had been raided by the Gardaí. And when he spoke to Joe, he was vehement in his denial of any criminality or wrongdoing. The big cartels, scum of this country that they're raiding, and rightly so, aren't all over the papers. And seeing houses they, they raided, and it took them eight hours from looking at the media and there were 24 hours of mine of no criminal convictions of no connection to any crime But Joe raised questions about the timing There was the raids in Crumlin on Tuesday there was this big story that was that was Tuesday there was this major story on Wednesday morning that at the same time they'd stopped the car and slain and found now this was a speculation they found the three uh, uh, what's it, AK-47s that were involved in the Regency? You know, I've seen that in the media myself, but the warrant issued to my house was issued on the 4th of March, but they executed it on um, Wednesday, Wednesday. So there's no connection between what happened to that instance, which I don't know anything about, to, mm. to, to, to mine. You and know, do you know? Do you well? Okay. Well, do you know? Do you know? So. Do you know what? Do you know the Hutch family or any of the Hutch who who are? You know all the speculation. Uh, Joe, you know about. the way the inner city works. I'm yeah. sure it was the same yeah, with yeah. Bally Everybody knows everybody in the yeah, inner city. Yeah. It was part of my job. I sponsored, as you said earlier on, I've done a lot in the community there, and I still do. And I sponsored football teams, the boxing teams, and of course I, I know uh, members of the Hutch family, and some of them I'm very proud to know, and there's some of them that I don't know. And throughout this interview, Dowdle maintained his innocence. Why did they, Joe, why do they make something so like public? You know, okay. they were good enough to notify the media, but they didn't tell them why they were here. They led it to believe that I was involved with the Kinahans. I've never met the Kinahans, spoke to them, or been in their presence, or any of those in, in my life, job. OK, OK. As a result of that raid in a separate matter, a USB flash drive would be found, with footage showing Jonathan Dowdle and his father imprisoning and torturing Alexander Hurley, a crime for which Dowdle would be sentenced to 12 years.
He would also be jailed by the Special Criminal Court for four years for facilitating the Hutch gang in the murder of David Byrne. And that taped Liveline interview would be referenced in the 13-week trial and would contribute to what Ms Justice Tara Burns described as a pattern of lying by Dowdle. On Tuesday's Morning Ireland, Rachel put this to former Assistant Garda Commissioner John O'Driscoll. Was this, though, the wrong prosecution? Could Gerard Hutch maybe have been charged with other offences? Because the judges made it clear yesterday that, you know, that Jonathan Dowdle was a terrible witness and that really there wasn't there wasn't anything else there. Well, you know, there could be a different outcome uh, and uh, the state can only prosecute and counsel sits down and the witness goes in the box and they, of course, have no control over what he or she will say when they're in the witness box. But in the course of the proceedings, when you look at what the court accepted, it accepted the evidence of the Garda Shikana about the existence of the Hutch organised crime group. It accepted that they probably organised the murder. It accepted that Jerry Hutch had control over the firearms used in the murder. And uh, it accepted the role of uh, paramilitaries uh, in, and the connection between organised crime uh, and those groupings, uh, an awful lot of evidence was accepted. Mm, but uh, Jerry Hutch wasn't charged with control of the guns. He was charged with being in the Regency Hotel, with being an actual shooter. Precisely. and uh, But at the same time... So the question is, was that a mistake? Well, perhaps uh, additional charges could have been pursued, but uh, obviously uh, there was such uh, uh, an amount of evidence that the state believed... Uh, linked Jerry Hutch to participation in in the murder that uh, they pursued uh, the the most serious uh, of, of the criminal uh, offences in, re- in respect to which he was a, a suspect. But without that credible evidence from Jonathan Dowdle, there was little to link Jared Hutch to the actual shooting. In fact, the judgment from the Special Criminal Court went further. Here's Conor Lally, Irish Times Security and Crime Editor of the Irish Times, with Claire. In the final heel of the hunt, if, if you like, while the court did say that it was satisfied that the attack was organised by the Hutch group, it said one could conclude that Patsy Hutch, who's Jerry Hutch's brother, that he actually planned the Regency Hotel attack and that Jerry, that Jerry Hutch only became involved in the aftermath of it, trying to, you know, quell things, trying to, you know, handle the fallout from the attack because he knew his own life was in danger after that incident. Mm-hmm. And this is perhaps why, as the court said, that Jerry Hutch became involved at that stage. So it was a very unusual finding in that the ruling not only found that there was no evidence in relation to Jerry Hutch, but it actually put forward, the court actually put forward its own thesis about who was possibly involved in the attack rather than Jerry Hutch. So I haven't quite seen that before. Um, that was certainly a very unusual feature of this case. And as we know, Claire, um, Patsy Hutch is, uh, has been under 24 armed guard protection really for the last six or seven years. So you have one agency of the state now guarding uh, Patsy Hutch on a 24-hour basis, which obviously costs a fortune. And yet some other agency of the state, i.e. the Special Criminal Court, is putting forward the thesis that possibly, um, it's not saying for sure, but it's saying possibly one could conclude that Patsy Hodge organised that, that, uh, the, the attack at the hotel that day. Conor Lally with Claire. And there is a political dimension to this too, because Jonathan Dowdle was a former Sinn Féin councillor. 
On the gathering with Clare yesterday, Park McLaughlin of Sinn Féin and Martin Hayden Finnegale, Minister of State of the Department of Agriculture, Food and the Marine, went head to head. Jonathan Dowdall, um, you know, obviously left our party um, in 2015. Um, it was reported in papers like the Irish Independent that he alleged that he'd been bullied and, and so on. He had a lot of uh, support um, from people who are now you know, asking questions on on his behalf that are concerned uh, about statements that he's made in court. I mean, I'm not going to get into... I mean, the judges have spoken about his credibility. Uh, but what I will say, and I'll repeat what Mary Lou and uh, what so many of us have said, is that if we had any inkling that this man was involved in the type of criminality, that he was the type of person that he turned out to be, of course he would have been nowhere near Sinn Féin. Uh, and he's certainly been a public, been public representative. That's a credible line. Uh, well, so, so just to be uh, very, very clear... Uh, because, you know, uh, we, we, we heard this stuff from Colin Brophy and now from Martin, who's obviously reading out the, the notes that he's been asked to deliver Hello. by fin, Fingale headquarters. I don't think anybody seriously believes that Mary Lou MacDonald, Mary Lou MacDonald, would happily allow somebody involved in that type of criminality to remain in Sinn Féin. Are you seriously suggesting that, Martin? Well, Mary Lou MacDonald said in 2015 when she was asked about the bullying allegations, she said she was aware of the minutiae details of everything to do with Jonathan Dowdell. She actually said that in 2015. It's written down. And now do she you says... Believe, and now no, she Martin, says that's she not what I asked know. you, Martin. With respect, Martin, I asked you. Do you believe that Mary Lou MacDonald, that Mary Lou MacDonald would have allowed somebody like that if she had known, uh, 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 you know, everything that emerged? The first time... And I, I can no, speak you asked me a question, I, let me answer it. Yeah, OK. I don't think it's credible that Mary Lou MacDonald can say she didn't know anything about conversations with senior officials in Sinn Féin before Jonathan Dowdell was elected and ran and had his posters printed for Sinn Féin. He was questioned about shooting incidents in Dublin and Mary Lou MacDonald now says she didn't know oh, hold anything. On, hold on, hold on, hold you, on. You, now, now, be very careful here. But you, you're now uh, parroting what was said in court by a, a witness who's been... On a brilliant... Discredi- no, no, no. Well, no, 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 he didn't. No, no, be very careful here, Martin. Uh, you said questioned. You said questioned by Sinn Féin officials. That was the words of Jonathan Dowdall. Now, he can speak for himself. That is not what happened. Uh, what happened was the director of elections in Dublin, Brian Keane at that time, as you well know, uh, in a political party, a director of elections has to engage with all candidates. So uh, in the course of a conversation with a candidate in that election, that candidate raised uh, an incident a number of they years ago. discussions then about a shooting No, no, incident. no, you said questioned. Uh, he wasn't questioned by anybody in China. You're he into semantics now. No, no, so Mary Lou MacDonald says she had no sense that there was anything shady okay. about his past, yet senior f- officials in Sinn Féin, before he was ever a candidate, had a discussion with him about shooting. OK, Pori, can, can we come credible. back to the special... From the gathering yesterday. And as the week finishes up, Jared Hutch and Patsy Hutch are free men and Jonathan Dowdell has been accepted into the Witness Protection Programme. But what might life now hold for the three? On Morning Ireland, Rachel put this to Nicola Talent, Investigations Editor with The Sunday World. Both Patsy Hutch and Jerry Hutch are pictured in today's papers. Presumably, they're surrounded by very tight security. Well, I work in the north inner city and I regularly pass Patsy Hutch's house. And since um, February 2016, there has been a constant presence, 24 hours a day, of a police car outside his house. Now, the threat level that remains on him is critical. The Kinahan organisation have gone from another number of times. There's been a number of assassination attempts thwarted by the police. In one of them, an eight-man hit team was jailed. Um, in another time, there was a, a plan foiled. The, the Kinahans were plotting to, to shoot him dead at his son's grave 
um, on the anniversary of Gary Hutch's uh, murder. So there is that critical threat level, but it is bizarre to say the least that we're seven years on and 24 hours a day, there are two police uh, who are sitting outside his house. I mean, it's one of the it is one of the crazy situations that has gone on in this investigation and the wider issue with the the Regency Hotel. We're in a position at the moment where we have Jonathan Dowdall in the Witness Protection Programme. The state, the taxpayer, will be funding his protection until he's relocated, and the relocation while he'll be relocated at a similar level to what, what the lifestyle he mm-hmm. lived. A lot of people in witness protection or in social welfare, you know, they're moving from one kind of social welfare system to another. They're relocated. They're maybe given a number for a liaison officer. That's pretty much it, actually. You're out there on your own after it. But in the case of Dowdall, it's very complicated. There's this entire family. You know, there's anybody who saw the pictures of his house, I, I wouldn't gather what it was worth at the moment but you know he had a very nice four bed house on the Navan Road he was driving a BMW he owned an, a, 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 an electrical company and he um, was a politician so how do you replicate that where do you replicate that yeah. and how does it all work I mean it's beyond me What a week it has been headlines photographs speculation and tension because it was the murder of David Byrne seven years ago that led to an escalation in the Hutchkinahan feud, a feud which has so far cost 18 lives. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Get up. No, really. Get up and do your very best, Elvis. Blue moon, blue moon, blue moon, keep shining bright. Oh, you're doing the dad rock overbite in the kitchen. No judgment here. Swivel those hips or not. It's a kind of misconception that it's its hips that are moving. Um, And (laughs) because the amount of time that I've spent watching the footage of, of, you know, why, of, of when he's, you know, arguably moving his hips i've i've worked out that it's actually coming from his knees it's really? coming from the floor yeah so it's it's he's pushing his the back of his heels into the ground which then shuffles his feet forward which means he has to flick his knee almost as if he's got something on the back of his knee and that is the thing that moves his hips so it, it would be really easy to go austin wiggle your hips like this but that there, there's no technicality to that. But actually, where the movement's coming from is from the knees, which is a, you know, which was a, a dance move back in the sort of 1950s, 19, late 1940s of the camel and the and the pony trot. Okay. So he's actually not doing anything. You know, he's not inventing anything. It's just his way of doing something that he's seen. Fascinating. And it was. That is movement coach Polly Bennett with Ryan. And she has worked with Austin Butler getting the Elvis moves just so. As well as Remy Malik on Bohemian Rhapsody and Actors on the Crown. And she gave some really interesting insights into why we move as well as how. Elvis was, you know, just just a boy that grew up in a African American community. What he was around was African American dancing, music. Um, you know, he he lived on sand, you know, on on um, dusty floors. Um, so if you look at that, even as an idea, you know, the way that you might move your feet when the floor is when the floor is dusty 
already gives a kind of um, inference into into how you might move. So a lot of his moves on stage are he shuffles his feet into the floor and he punctuates little steps. He's not lifting his knees up and slapping his feet down. Um, so that is that's the why. It, it comes back to the why. Mm. And why he does that is because of how he how he grew up. So it is it's going back to the the base of what who, who that person is as a person rather than who he is as the kind of wallpaper Elvis Presley that we all yes. have come to know. Very interesting. And if you thought you knew Freddie Mercury, think again. If you're at a, a dance floor in a wedding and you hear a Queen song, everyone <laughs> sort of starts punching quite wildly or yes. strutting around. Yes. And that all comes for me, again, going back to the movement heritage of, of Freddie, like why he moves the way he does, is he actually at school was, you know, he was bullied a lot for the way he looked, yeah. but he also was a very good sportsman. He did a lot of long-distance running. You know, he he was champion at his school. Right. He um, boxed and he was known for playing golf. So all of the... <sighs> things so when you look at live aid i'm going why is he punching and then you go oh my gosh he was he was boxing as a kid so that's the same as me standing in first position because i did ballet yes you know he's he's just doing this the things that are known in his body so he's not um pretending to be anyone else it's the most authentic thing which is his physical story so him punching and him um swinging his half mic as if it was a golf club when brian may is doing a guitar solo or him running on stage with really high knees very different than elvis you know he runs across the stage he's playing to the stadium but with the physical narrative that he that he owns that is so fascinating and so disappointing the fact that he's he, that i mean the idea that freddie mercury and golf i'm not anti-golf by any means but it's just so <laughs> at odds with the man oh there's greg allen down the back bristling Polly Bennett with Ryan. But staying with films, the reviews on Arena and flesh-eating zombies on Evil Dead Rise. How, how do you describe the Evil Dead franchise, Dave Van Raddy? Uh, it's a roller coaster of blood and gore and strange humour. Uh, this is very much a winking thing where uh, it's not going to haunt your dreams, essentially, but it's also so, and I need to make this so clear, this is not for the faint of heart. If you have any kind of squeamishness whatsoever, maybe consider doing something else with your mm. Friday night, but if, if the idea of a great Friday night out in a packed cinema for you is seeing absolute carnage on screen, in the form of incredible special effects and serious trauma to the human body. I, this is it, guys. You have it. Well, that's the newsroom sorted. And then they moved on to Missing, a whole new subgenre of film called Screen Life. The plot here involves the search for a missing woman. But first, Screen Life? <sighs> Very quickly explain for us, if you would, Dave, what screen life films are. Uh, If you've seen the film Searching, which this is set in the same universe as, or the horror film Unfriended, you'll know that those films play out entirely as if from the perspective of somebody operating a laptop or a desktop or another mobile device. So if anyone appears on screen, it's through a webcam or a Skype Mm. call or a Zoom call or something like that. So it's all post-production trickery. Um, I wouldn't want to see one of these every week, but it's pretty impressive, I have to say, in terms of how they do it. Sounds intriguing at the very least. Be this the future. But then it came to their review of Pray for Our Sinners, a documentary from Sinead O'Shea. She returns to her hometown of Navan to explore the control the Catholic Church held there and the extraordinary figures who chose to resist its power. And in particular, two GPs in the town. Here's reviewer Deirdre Malumbi. 
I think that everyone will be, you know, very familiar with the context of, you know, Ireland and the backdrop of the churches, um, Catholic churches hold on the state of Ireland from the 1930s to really about the 90s, which is very recent history uh, we're talking about here. Women and children were particularly uh, mistreated within this system. And I think even though you are so familiar with that context, Mm. I think that what makes Pray for Our Sinners stand out from the rest is really how personal it is um, in its focus on individual testimonies. And I love how with all of her um, interview subjects, they often actually address Sinead by her first name. And I think that that's because she really has this, you know, very personal rapport with them. And you feel as you hear each story that you're being invited into a very intimate uh, secret that really Mm. you're privileged to listen to. Uh, And uh, normally I like to throw around stars uh, on this programme at this particular time. I don't think that's a suitable thing to do for this particular, certainly the story. You can't, you can't negotiate stars around the story here. But as a film, how well is it made and how important is it, do you think, to see it, Dave? I think it's, I mean, it's it's kind of familiar in that documentary style. I mean, I think it's more about the story and what you hear from the people as opposed to any kind of visual aesthetic. I think people should see this movie. I think people should see this film. I think it's worth seeing. I think it's worth talking. Talking about, I think it's important, and I commend everyone involved. Deirdre? Yeah, I was just left in utter awe of this movie. Um, I've heard it described as relating stories of resistance. And I mean, the fact that these individuals were able to push back against this system so bravely in such difficult circumstances, it's just remarkable. I think it's a powerful documentary. I think it really is unmissable, and we need to hear more of these stories to heal. High praise indeed. That was Pray for Our Sinners, reviewed on Arena. Now, the Darcy had some serious stuff this week. Pathogens shaping history, how we can heal our traumas, the importance of friendship and he got into the sea, among other things. But cheap dates that we are, we will go with a two-year-old sphinx cat called Gillian. Mm-hmm. A prize winner in her category. Would you describe her outfit to our listeners for people who didn't see the picture? She was wearing a hat, which my mother, Pat, actually made for her. Right. She crocheted it. And the dress she was wearing um, was made by a lady in Russia um, who designs um, clothes for things. And she got pearls on her? She, oh, yes. that was a, yes, yeah. I kind of go mad buying things for her. Right. And it's a little pearl, pearl necklace with a, a diamond heart on it as well, yes. Pearls on a cat, is there no dignity? And Gillian descended from the Bengal tiger. The woman responsible, Susan Hart. Does she enjoy getting dressed up, Susan? You know, she seems to, yes. Yeah. As, because she's a sphinx cat, she's, they, they need clothes constantly, you know, to keep them warm. There's no fur. Well, it's, it's the very little fur, don't they? They've no, no fur. No at fur all. at all, no. right. They no look like they're, no. Yeah, they look like they're inside out sort of thing, don't they? Exactly. Yes. yes yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. So they 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 have to be protect. They kept warm. Yeah. You know what I mean. So like Gillian would have pajamas and all for night time. <laughs> um, yeah. And a hot water bottle. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spoiled. So we, rotten. Yeah. Oh yes. Absolutely. Yeah. She's my baby. Well, Gillian actually looked that grumpy. That's the <laughs> thing about things is they're not known for their for their looks and their their sweet expressions. <laughs> you know, they kind of always look grumpy, but. That's yeah. what made me love them. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> and how many cats have you got? I have 17. <laughs> Between myself and my mother, I have 17. Sorry? 17. No, yeah. I heard you the first time. I'm just sorry. <laughs> 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 Darcy putting the ham in the sandwich. 
for Claire Byrne. A chance to break into song. She is mad for it, unless she gets there first. I would sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of holding you near in spite of a warning voice comes in the night and repeats and shouts in my ear. Don't you know, blue eyes, you never can win. Use your mentality, wake up to reality. But each time that I do, just the thought of you makes me stop before I begin. You do the Bono bit. No, I can't. Go on. Keep going. Keep going. I'm enjoying it. Oh, I keep telling you, every time you come in here, I keep telling you, I cannot sing. And you keep oh, Claire, asking me happen. One of these to days, sing. it's going to happen. It's going to happen on an OB somewhere. It probably will. And it'll be an accident. <laughs> Definitely not going for the two-hander then. Because this week also saw Montrose with a new DG all hail. Kevin Backhurst. And for Liveline listeners, first thing on the agenda, no, not the licence fee, nor digital streaming. Oh no, it's this. Who will replace Ryan Tuberty on the Late Late Show? It's it's like this, Joe. If they're going to go for a woman presenter, they they shouldn't look any further than Imelda May. Well, I would make a suggestion. I think Brendan Courtney would be an ideal fit for the job. Yeah. I was saying a combination of two people. Carol Mullen. Okay. He was a dancer with a star. Of course, he was. Really he was really good. in it. He, he was really good. He won it. Darren Garrahy, Carl. Yeah, she was excellent and, and dancing with stars as well, presenting and asking questions. That, you know. Tommy Sheeran. Okay, why? We, we've seen Tommy as the stand-up comedian and then we've seen Tommy Sheeran, the interviewer, and he is... Uh, he, he's brilliant at it. It needs to be taken and shook up, Joe. And how would you shook it up, Bernie? I'd shake it. I'd get variety. I don't. I just, it's all been see, the online stuff now is kind of taking. And what do I know that? What, what what does the late late need more of? It need more um, talent, differentness, something. Something. Okay. Somebody, somebody will be sorely missed. All right. How about yourself, Joe? Do you not go for it? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm, I've ruled myself out before I was even ruled. Ah, before be I was silly. even ruled in. Bernie, do you think okay. you'd have? Would you have a shout at it yourself? Seriously, I'm not. I know it's. Um, I'd, have, I'd have to give it more, a lot of consideration. Okay, Joe. okay, okay. Oh, it is on. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Mm-mm-mm-mm. It may not feel like it, but we are in the money. Ten billion of a budget surplus. On Tuesday's news at one, Robert Short. It is absolutely extraordinary. There is a wall of money uh, washing up against the Exchequer. And the uh, forecast for this year, as I understand it, which will be confirmed when the Stability Programme update is published this afternoon, are for a surplus of €10 billion this year and for a surplus of just over €16 billion next year. So it's an absolutely massive increase in the position of the public finances. And really, the main factor underpinning this is the massive increases that we've been seeing in corporation tax. The increase in corporation tax, just to kind of give it some context, it's more than doubled since 2020. So that's a massive increase straight away. And then the other thing to note is that just over half of it is attributed to just 10 companies 
So just 10 companies. Now, we wish those 10 companies well and long may they prosper. But that puts a huge risk on the receipt of taxation based on the business models of 10 companies who are focused, the the companies are relatively narrowly focused in either pharmaceuticals or computer services or the wider sort of provision of computer services, whether that's in hardware or software. Golly, just 10, but 10 we need. But that wasn't the only explanation for this boon. And then just yesterday, you know, and this is as dramatic as things get in the statistical world, uh, as I understand it, just about an hour or so before the CSO was due to publish its uh, uh, provisional figures for the surplus for last year, they got a call from Eurostat to say, I'm really sorry, but we've changed the rules on how we're going to account or how you should account for the uh, MICA scheme, the Defective Concrete Block Scheme. The government had basically pencilled in the total expenditure anticipated there, 2.7 billion euro uh, on their books last year. So that would reduce the surplus, if you like. But Eurostat are saying, well, actually, we think you should account for it as it's spent. So therefore, that's been added to the surplus. So now we go from one to five to eight billion euro. And I suppose it shows you the the right foot, uh, the good start the government is getting in the public finances for this year, which brings us closer then to understanding how they're going to return a surplus of 10 billion euro this year. Quite the day for statisticians. That was economics correspondent Robert Short on the News at One. But caution was the watchword for Ministers McGrath and Donoghue, although I'm not sure they would have put it quite like this. Welcome back. We're still waiting on Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, who seems to be running late. Well, actually, I'm already in studio. Oh, I didn't see you hidden away there. No, I'm, I'm right in front of you, in fact. Um, and I see you've brought former Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, along with you. Don't mind me. I'm just here to make sure Michael doesn't make any oopsie whoopsies and to flash my dimply doos should things go astray. Minister, we're looking at a 16 billion euro budget surplus. Wow. Where should this money be spent? Well, Other than vastly bigger pay for the next host of the late late, <laughs> whoever she may be. Uh, it's important we don't get too excited about this surplus, which is what makes me such a good minister for finance, as it's impossible to get excited while listening to my voice. Uh, so where will the money go? Sorry. We intend to find the most boring way possible to spend the money, which means plenty of talk about excise duties, carbon taxes, fiscal space, quarterly returns. And and the rainy day fund, which we don't use, even though it's been piddling down for over a decade now, thanks to Prudent Pascal's penny-pinching purse strings. So what you're saying is this will be the biggest waste of budget since we put Luke O'Neill in a big inflatable bubble? It's only a budget forecast, Claire, and sure, even the weather forecast is often wrong. That's why we have sayings like... It'd be a fine country if you could put a fiscally conservative roof on it. So you won't be announcing more special support measures for people now that ketchup is five euro a bottle? Or so my researchers tell me. No, we'd prefer to wait until budget day for any further measures. It's much easier to give billions in tax breaks to corporate landlords and developers if we say we're putting a five euro or tuppence back in people's pockets at the same time. Tax breaks for mega landlords and developers. Yes. Are they still the only ideas the government has? I, I don't think that's fair, Claire. This uh, government has been hard at work on a job of work to do to develop a third idea and I think we're close to achieving that third idea. 
And what is this third idea? Sneaky secret increases to ministers' wages under social pinky partnerships. Hooray! Yes, that one. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks to Michael McGrath. Thank you. And to Pascal Donoghue, physically here, but mentally already in his next job in Europe, getting patted on the head. Excuse me, how dare you? I do not get patted on my head. They ruffle my hair. I demand an apology. And we'll roll the standard Pascal Donoghue apology audio Hmm. after this break. Thank you very much. Where does one end and the other begin? Two ministers for the prize of one. From Callan's Kicks. On Monday, Christy Dignam of Aslan spoke to Ryan. He's 62 and was diagnosed with cancer 10 years ago. And at this point, he knows he's facing death. The interview was frank, moving and at times funny. Because as Ryan noted, every time he thinks it's all over, it isn't. We're in your front room today. We'll talk about that in a moment. But when I came through the door, obviously Catherine, your, your wife, said she was, she said, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, she said, he's like Lazarus in there, you know. And I was laughing because <laughs> I think you were on the Late Late Show for the last time about six times. I know, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean by that? I do, yeah. So people just be on Facebook saying, he has shares in the Late Late Show. Like, honest to God, I've got a few of them. Nobody wants to die, you know, and... When I first got diagnosed, I remember praying, please, just give me 10 more years, you know. Mm. And that 10 years are up now, and you're kind of saying, OK, I know I only asked for 10, but you couldn't throw another 10 in there, would you? Now, Christy has moved from a palliative care centre back to his own home, and he knows what the future holds. I was sitting here one day, and I was looking out the window, this was only about a couple of weeks ago, and this fellow walked by the door, just walking by, you know. And I just looked at him and I thought, you'll never do that again. You'll never walk, just go for a walk, you know. And, and then that kind of sent me into a spoil. I started thinking all the things like I won't do again. You thought to yourself, I can never do what that man's doing, which is simply just walking, walking by your window. Road, yeah. And what does a spiral look like or feel like? It's, it's, oh, it's dark, is it? Nice. It's like you're kind of heading into an, into, into an abyss, you know, and... I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be huge at religious, you know. So as a whole, I remember really uh, admiring Catherine's man that and my man that, because they were kind of happily going to make that lovely. You know, we, we've done the hard bit. Now we're going to heaven. Yeah. I'd love to have that outlook. Do you know what I mean? But you don't have any of that faith. As a... logic, just <laughs> just won't work with me. Your logic you know? won't let that in. No. But like when I come in the door, I see two what looks like religious, uh, almost Eastern yeah, well, Buddhist heads of some sort. This, I, I, I believe I'm spiritual. I believe we're all spiritual beings, you know, in yeah. some, some sense or other. So the, I remember there used to be an old saying when I was going to NA that uh, religion is for people who want to go to heaven. Uh, spirituality is for people who've been to hell. And I really identified with that, you know, because um, when, when, when you've had rough times... You, you see that the contrast is so vast that it, it helps you see the world in a more focused way. You know, if you know what I mean. And as a heroin addict, he has indeed faced some really tough times. We we're in meditation. Do you see these meditate meditations? So we're lying on this big floor, and there's no doors in any of the places because it's so warm over there. So there's a monk up the top, and the next minute he's like. Get Honest to God, when you're in a meditative state, 
it's like in a different place, you know. But this snake had come into the oak like it had been about six foot long, you know, just slithered into the room and it slithered in between all of us. We were all just lying on mats, you know, and you think, what, what, what? Well, how did this happen? That was the dark, the darkest time then. For that, that you. was dark, yeah. Um, let me reverse the question. Yeah. When, when were you happiest? The happiest moment I ever had in my life was care to being born. I'll never forget that moment because, and I remember thinking with care that this person existed, had no identity. It was just a bump on Catherine, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And in a nanosecond, you'd kill everybody in the room if you tried to touch that baby, you know? Yeah. And I remember the love hit me that quickly, you know, and that suddenly. It nearly knocked me out my feet, it nearly knocked me out my arse, do you know what I mean? But that was an amazing, that was an amazing feeling. But for fans, it is the music made by Dignam and Aslan that will endure. Yeah, on the wall here you have a letter from... From Mick. Oh, from Mick, Mick yeah. Mick. Mick, you call him Mick, we call him President Higgins. But he says he wants to thank you for all you've contributed to the cultural life of our nation. That and blew me away, that is. He says, I join with your many loyal fans in wishing you a speedy recovery. And may I say how much... All music lovers look forward to Aslan's much anticipated fourth anniversary performance. That was sent in November 2022. And that's a letter from the first citizen of the country. But, you know, we we know from from the radio programme, from the TV show, the amount of love that's come in for you by way of email, so letter, shocked. text. Really unbelievable. I'm still humbled by it, you know. Like the reaction has been absolutely amazing. And that's another reason why I wanted to do this. I wanted this opportunity to thank all those people because I never really got a chance to do it, to thank all those people who stood by me and who who helped give me a great life. You know, it's been an absolute pleasure doing it with them, you know. Incredible amount of love out there for yeah. you, I can tell you. And I'll tell you another thing. If you ask me, would I rather be successful on a world stage and hated in Ireland or loved in Ireland and not giving a shit about in the international stage. I wouldn't swap it for anything in the world. And this is how the interview finished up. Are you happy, are you sad, are you scared? I'm happy. And I get very sad and I get very scared. Like, you know, the thing about, with this diagnosis, anybody that te- with cancer, that's the way I used to love listening to Vicky feeling and that, because... When you do get into a particular emotion, you get into it. You know what I mean. You don't. You don't do. It, you don't do it by halves. Do you know what I mean? Because everything is so. Everything is so serious. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's no. There's no time for bullshit. Do you feel minded and loved? Yeah, I grew up pretty insecure about myself. You know, I always felt very vulnerable, and you, you know, and to be. It's like an acceptance almost. Mm. And that's why I think I became who I became because every night you're going out trying to prove, you know, get, get people's approval, mm. you know. Mm. So that's, that, that was a huge uh, sense of satisfaction for me, the response I got from, from the public when they announced, you know, that I probably wouldn't be gigging anymore, you know. Would you like to say anything else before we say goodbye? I love you. I love you too, man. <laughs> No, I think we got through it all there. It's just I hope people listening in their cars or wherever they are in the world 
feel that they were in the room with us today. Yeah. Listening to you talking so freely and animatedly and excitedly and yeah. sometimes sadly about life and the universe because you're always so engaging, so smart, so astute, so talented. All the things you won't let me say to you to your face, but I'm going to say them anyway. But thanks to you and Catherine for, for, for letting us here today. And as I keep saying to you, every time I meet you, see you next time. Yeah. God knows, yeah. If there's a nuclear war, it'd be just me and cockroaches left, as I said before. Christy Dignam, you're some man for one man. Um, mind yourself and we'll see you along the road. You too, Ryan. It's great talking to you. Christy Dignam. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. And we can, but finish with the music. Peace, This is the